something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. There were multiple times the search parties came here and scoured the bluffs with fancy helicopters and airplanes and and boats and everything else. But in the end, what really was, was the ocean stirring things up and calming down again, and then diligent people looking. No one that I know of witnessed the accident. That's, That's the word. Every time I go by there, I think of those poor kids. It's the part about those kids losing their life that I think of the most. Because even though all of it and all the search and rescue and all the people who came here, what I remember is, because I'm a father, the most important thing is is that those kids don't go home and they don't have a life. So I don't know what happened, but I know that that's the end result of all of it. That's Valentine Hale, also known as Val. He's the owner of Val's Towing and the Westport Community Store, which is the social hub of the town where the hearts died. He had a bird's eye view of what happened in the aftermath of the crash. It turns out Justine and I weren't the only ones who couldn't stop thinking about this case. People from as far away as Italy and Australia wondered what had happened to the hearts and were worried about Hannah and Devante, whose whereabouts were still unknown. But in January 2019, almost 10 months after the crash, officials announced that a foot discovered near the crash site belonged to Hannah. Devante's body has not been found. From Glamour and How Stuff Works, this is Broken Hearts. I'm Liz Egan. And I'm Justine Harmon. Our focus was on finding the kids because the mainstream media did not seem interested and there wasn't a lot of articles about it. And I thought, how can they just be erased? That's Amy Atlas, who started a Facebook group called Finding the Missing Heart Children and Honoring the Heart Children back in April. The heart story piqued her interest, mostly because she felt there wasn't enough urgency to the search for the missing kids. Amy's group now has 274 members. There are other groups, so many others. Heart Family Case Discussion, which has 1,411 members. Heart Family Case Discussion, this time in all caps, with 170 members. What happened to the hearts? Their history, the crash, the kids. 490 members. 
Hart Family Crash Theories, 101 members, and Let the Heart Shine, a 223-member closed group for people who, quote, loved, knew, or were connected to the Hart Family in some way. In order to get into this one, you have to explain how you knew the Hearts. Lauren and Liz tried and failed. Apparently, it wasn't enough to have examined every photo, read every article, and even taken a virtual tour of their house via an old real estate listing. Because no matter how much we felt like we knew the hearts, we didn't actually know them at all. Last spring, I joined two Facebook groups. At the time, they were at peak activity. But conversation in both forums remains busy to this day, with dozens of comments following each picture or post. In both groups, there's a lot of discussion about adoption, about Jen and Sarah's history of child abuse, about whether or not they were racist, and about whether or not the drive over the cliff was premeditated or spontaneous. Did Sarah know what Jen was planning to do? Was one of them terminally ill? Members even reached out to the DeKalbs about organizing a search party. They debated about the Hart's financial situation, their clothing, their smiles, their sleeping arrangements, the contents of their refrigerator, their decor, and even why Jen and Sarah let their chickens roam free in the house. For months, I read every post and all the comments in both groups. I was the quintessential lurker, never contributing to the conversation myself, but still going numb while I pored over pictures of the hearts in happier times. There are a lot of disagreements in the heart Facebook groups. Several women, and they're almost all women as far as I can tell, are members in other groups, too. And tensions rise when a member of one group shares secrets with another group and word trickles back to the original group. There's discussion about who's racist and classist and who's not, and who's even entitled to level this charge in the first place. The groups are pretty diverse, both racially and geographically. The most incendiary debate arises again and again and again, and the conversation goes on and on and on when someone suggests they might feel a shred of sympathy for Jen and Sarah. These people are swiftly attacked, flamed to the point of being charbroiled. The prevailing sense is the heart moms were monsters. And if you don't agree, you should go start your own discussion group for friends of mass murderers. As much as I wonder why Jen kept her foot on the gas, I also wonder what drives someone to invest so much time interacting with complete strangers online. Seven months after the accident, before Hannah's foot was positively identified, I decided to check in with Amy Atlas to find out. The group is called Finding the Missing Heart Children and Honoring the Heart Children. The short-term goals were to find Sierra, Devante, and Hannah. Now, Devante and Hannah, since Sierra has been found, and also honoring all the children for the abuse that they endured and so that they did not die in vain through longer-term solutions such as, you know, homeschool regulations or adoption reform. I think that at the maximum capacity, we probably had maybe it was 500 people. We asked people what their skills were from, you know, being the grant writer, a lawyer, somebody who's worked in the legislature, to somebody who's worked in social services community. You name it, we asked like what people's skills were. And according to that, we would assign people different responsibilities. At the peak level, I would absolutely say 
you know, myself and a few others were working on this 20 hours a day. So we were sleeping four hours and we were doing this full time. 20 hours a day. That is a serious commitment for someone with a family, a career, a life. Amy is a mom of two and a cookbook author who happens to have a law degree. There really were only about four of us that were in the core group, like staying up 20 hours a day. Yeah, then there was probably another group of, you know, 15 people that had like a real interest in helping. We were calling all of the counties every single day to all the different county sheriffs to find out what was happening with the search. That was all the counties that Jennifer and Sarah drove through in Washington and Oregon and California. From calling there to having correspondence with the FBI, we also tried to organize peaceful protests and also create media awareness so the story didn't die. We created flyers for them and put them all over everywhere we could on the web, from Facebook pages to emailing different influencers and asking them to speak out. We'd also email their flyers to a missing person organizations or authorities and kind of like missing person investigations. Mostly it was an online effort. We tried to make an effort where we would go to the West Coast, but there wasn't enough interest, unfortunately. I was ready to go out there. Even when we gave a tip to the FBI, they didn't reach back out to us until we sent an email to the press person for the FBI. It took, I think it was six days for somebody to get back to us, which I thought was rather alarming since it was still very much a case that seemed like they were looking into, and it was a designated phone line for tips. The FBI still has a site soliciting information about the heart crash, and the messaging on there includes a warning that tips may not be followed up on. But still, Amy was frustrated. And when you're putting that kind of time in, it just was frankly disgusting because it felt like, wow, their lives were erased when they were living, and now it's so easy to erase them when they're not alive. How would you react if you found out your sister or friend was investing 20 hours a day in trying to solve a crime that happened in a faraway state involving strangers? I asked Amy what people in her life had to say about it and how she knew when it was time to dial back her time in the group. The reaction from the people that I spoke with that were offline was mixed. First of all, some people hadn't even heard about the case, and then I sent them more information about it, and they couldn't believe that it wasn't something that they had heard about or they had recalled seeing a headline of family drives off of a cliff but didn't have all the information. But then the people that did know about the case a little more. It was a combination of, wow, this is so wonderful that you're doing this. And then there were a few people like, well, why are you doing this? But I I would say by and large, more people thought, wow, it's so great that somebody is doing something. Sleuth groups often pop up after an especially grisly crime, possibly as a receptacle for all the emotions sparked by tragedy. But there's a certain poetic justice to the heart's immortalization on Facebook considering it was Jen's preferred mode of communication. And in recent months, we've uncovered another world where she was equally entrenched. Jen was an avid video gamer. The name of her game of choice, ironically enough, was Oz, Broken Kingdom. She played for hours on end while Sarah was at work. That may explain why Devante told Dana DeKalb that his moms weren't really paying attention to what went on at home. Jen was a guild leader, which is kind of like being a team captain, 
and she kept meticulous handwritten notes of her players' moves. Investigators found pages and pages of them when she died. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. We're about to hear from Drew, who knew Jen through the gaming world. He asked us not to use his last name. If my employer knew the amount of hours I dedicated to gaming... Uh, I would be fired. Drew met Jen when they were both playing Oz and ended up in the same clan. If you're a gaming novice like us, you might be wondering what in the world this means. Online gaming offers social components, at least the best games do. And to foster this social environment, they've created these entities called clans. And usually clans consist of about 50 people. And you join a clan and then you compete against everyone else. And in joining a clan, the benefit you gain, of course, is obviously the social component. In order to keep you hooked, gaming developers understand they have to foster that social environment. So what they'll do is offer you rewards in-game for being part of a clan. And so to put it simply, if you're highly competitive and you also happen to like people on any level then you will definitely join a clan because it's the only way to really win. Jen was a co-leader of the clan that I 
happened upon, and she was good. And by good, I mean she developed relationships very quickly with people, with all clan members. She got to know them on a personal level, talking to people, making sure everyone's good. And Jin really shined when there was a newcomer. If someone didn't know how to conquer a particular part of the game, that was her wheelhouse. She loved the uh, the bird with the broken wing. I became a part of the leadership board for, for that clan with Jen. And we would have conference calls on a fairly regular basis where we would just touch upon gaming concepts on a weekly basis. You know, we would strategize. Jen's clan was called Dropping Houses, and her screen name was simply Heart. There were a bunch of different characters you could choose from. Hers was the Tin Man. Remember, the Tin Man was the one who went down the yellow brick road in search of a heart. Drew says it isn't unusual for a player to spend 12 to 14 hours a day building a character. There's opportunities in these games where you could have hours, endless hours of intense concentration. There would definitely be weeks where, I mean, just judging by her rank, it was clear that she had spent a ridiculous number of, of hours. Drew describes Jen as highly competitive. Another gamer we spoke to called her a stone-cold narcissist because she kept her clan members on such a tight leash, bossing them around at all hours of the day. It was common for Jen to sit near the top of the rankings. Not just the clan rankings, but the individual ones, which is a bigger deal. Team members teased her about how she was the first to crack a really complex part of the game. Drew told her she must have developed a diagram to figure it out. In fact, she had. Sometime in the summer of 2017, Jen abruptly left the game, claiming she wanted to spend more time with her kids. Drew believes her hasty departure was because of a conflict with a fellow gamer who she believed was cheating. Jen refused to continue on if he stayed in the clan. And when he didn't leave, she signed off the chat with a picture of her kids at the beach. She would consistently show photos of her with her kids, you know, in the woods or at the beach or wherever in clan chat and talk about these escapades that they've gone on or that they are planning. She taught ad nauseum about the fact that they were adopted, but far more than that even, just the amount of oppression that she experiences because she is the mother of Black children. Jen and Drew spent hours chatting about everything. The game, politics, their families. But he says there was one subject that never came up. Sarah. She never once, and I'm talking like six months of consistent talking, she never once mentioned her wife, Sarah. In personal communication with me or in the clan chat, She never mentioned her sexual orientation to me, uh, for whatever reason. Drew happened to check in with Jen shortly before she died. We had both left the game. I hadn't talked to her in several months, and I just reached out to say, hey, see how things were going. And in that conversation, we got around to uh, talking about our real-life personas a little more. She once again cited a scenario where she was oppressed. She'd been grocery shopping with the kids and 
a person in line, you know, gave her a nasty look because of um, what she believes. She believes it was because of the color of her kid's skin. Yeah, she illustrated that in far more words, but that was the basic gist of it. And I, I really did sympathize with her. Like, <sighs> I wanted. It was clear that because she talked about these scenarios so often. Like, it was pretty clear that she was being hyperbolic, but Jim was just such a fun personality, you couldn't help but give her the benefit of a doubt. So I'm like, this is absurd. I can't believe you're enduring this again. In retrospect, I'm convinced that almost none of it actually happened. And that I guess I should preface this by saying I've never met anyone like Jen. <laughs> I think she became so fixated on this persona that she really did become convinced of it herself. And, you know, when she's following these statements up with these these photos of her precious children, like, it, I mean, it just, it, it, it pulls at the heartstrings. Drew has five young kids, so he and Jen bonded about the challenges of living in a crowded house. Her message to him, Enjoy it while it lasts. He says he got the impression that she missed being able to control her kids. Who doesn't when they have teenagers? We wondered, did she ever talk about her kids being delayed? The way she communicated it to me was more focused on the idea that they were developmentally delayed when she adopted them. But thanks to her efforts, they've come so far. They're different people. They're better people. Of course, the bird with the broken wing. This sounds like the Jen we've come to know. We wondered if Jen talked about the kids' futures with Drew. Never, never once. To read now that she was reportedly depriving them of food, like, it is infuriating. Like, not just to me, but to all of us who spent so much time online with her. Because we can't help but think that the hours that she was devoting to us and to our clan and to our game. The money that she was devoting to the game, it should have, it should have gone to the children. When I realized that she was a homeschool mom, I'm like, there's no way in hell those kids are learning. I mean, really, it's impossible with the amount of time she's spending on this game and with, this, with the gaming community, there, it's impossible that six kids could be learning. Like many people who thought they knew Jen Hart, Drew has really struggled to figure out why she did what she did. Her life had become wrapped up in this image that she uh, so carefully crafted. This image of her as this doting mom and champion of racial reconciliation. Her life had become so identified. She had identified herself by this cause, if you will, that... When she came to grips with the fact that it was all going to fall apart, strangely enough, I think she took the same approach that she took with that guy in the game. It was like, okay, it's either him or me, but in this case, it's, it's all of us. Uh, either I get to maintain my image, uh, my, my preferred image, or none of us get to maintain anything at all. Drew also points a finger at video games, which give players a quick hit of dopamine they come to crave. He describes this phenomenon as, quote, an endless rewards-based experience. 
I think about the Vegas shooter, and his motive has been so elusive. He was spending even more absurd hours and money pulling this random number generator, seeking these flashing lights, this dopamine hit. And I think, in my experience, the more I played, the less impressive real, the real world proved to be. I have been described, I hope in some sense justifiably, as of like a pretty great dad, like a, a very involved dad. Like I, I really do take my kids, uh, my wife and I both are very active with our children. We love to go hiking. We love to play sports. We, I mean, the list goes on and on. But it's strange. Like, the more I played, the more in-depth I got into the game, the gaming experience, the less interested I was in playing catch with my son, the less interested I was in spending time with my wife. And I really like her. Like, I really do. <laughs> She's great. But it just, it, I was addicted, uh, truly addicted to these the highs that the game provided. And then on top of that, I didn't want to let my clanmates down. And like, I wanted to win and I didn't want to let Jen down. When real life gets more stressful is when the temptation to escape into this alternative life becomes stronger. The game is not the cause. I think the game just creates conditions that perhaps contribute to acts like the heart crash or the Vegas shooting. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, 
and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. So maybe Jen was running away from her real life, from her six growing kids who had little to no education and uncertain futures, into the arms of Facebook and video games. It's sad if you think about it. Of course, you wish someone had heeded the calls of the kids. But you also wish Jen had gotten some help, let someone come into the house and keep her company, taken a walk with a friend, talked to a therapist, joined a support group for adoptive parents. Would any of this have made a difference? A source close to the family agrees that Jen needed help. This person says, I think that this whole thing comes down to, she was always trying to fix everybody else and make herself look good, when in fact she was the one who needed the help. Of course, all of this begs the question, where was Sarah? Of all the people we've spoken to, her Coles colleague Cheryl Hart is the one who knew Sarah best. She had said that they used to just always go out, go to concerts, they would go to shows, and, and Jen was always really happy all the time and stuff. And and now Jen was just really closed off, and she was tired all the time, and she had migraines. When Cheryl would press for details about medications Jen might try or whether or not she was seeing a doctor, Sarah shut down the conversation. She'd get personal, but only to an extent. And while Sarah was willing to acknowledge that Jen might be suffering from depression— she definitely didn't want to get into specifics. Other details Cheryl remembers. The Hearts had a family library, but the kids were only allowed to check out two books at a time. Jen never slept in a bed. She always fell asleep on the couch in front of the TV. She also wouldn't let Sarah wear her hair in a ponytail. None of this paints a portrait of the happiest marriage. Jen had some sort of online game that she ran through Facebook. That was her escape ever since kind of like the whole thing went viral with Devante. Yeah, she didn't want to do the trips or the concerts or any of that stuff. So she kind of did the virtual world because she did call the store one morning. It was before we had opened. So the call came to my desk. I had answered the phone and it was a woman on the other end and they had asked to speak with Sarah Hart and I placed her on hold and I told Sarah it was for her. And Sarah had gone into a complete panic. And she had gone into an office and shut the door. And she came out about, about 10, 10 to 12 minutes later. And she had told us that it was Jen that was on the phone. And she was upset with her because Sarah had not done her part of that game for the day, setting up something. And Jen was really upset because it was really important that Sarah do whatever it was that she was supposed to do for that game. She was really upset. She had told Sarah that that was her only out, that was her only reason for living, and she, there was no re- if she wasn't going to help her through that, then there was no reason for her to exist anymore. She just kind of gave me this look like of kind of like fear. And I remember making this comment, like, you're like an abused wife. And she just kind of gave me this look like, no kidding. And it just kind of, kind of like the whole tone kind of changed after that. It was just like, okay, something's not right. Would Cheryl have responded differently 
if Sarah had described this kind of controlling behavior coming from a man. Now it's like, oh, well, you're lesbians. You guys can do whatever you want. And then you try not to delve into their personal relationship and you don't know what boundaries you can cross. Cheryl says Sarah was very open about her marriage to Jen. She didn't try to hide the fact that she was married to a woman. In fact, she says Sarah probably used the word wife a hundred times a day, to the point where other colleagues teased her about it. She could never say Jen. It was always my wife, my wife, my wife. And it was like, she rarely ever called her by name. We just always thought it was funny because it's like, I didn't go around saying, well, my husband this, my husband that. Cheryl says Sarah talked about what it was like to work long hours and then go home and take over from Jen, who'd been alone with the kids all day. Cheryl got the impression that Sarah did most of the cooking. Sarah was also open about the pressure of being the breadwinner. She carried most of the credit card debt, which Cheryl says was the result of everyday expenses and home renovations. Sarah's unpaid balance was over $14,000 as of March 2018, and Jen's was about $2,000, according to a report released after their death. Not astronomical, but enough to keep you up at night if you're supporting a family of eight on $45,000 a year and you're about to lose your monthly stipends for adopting kids out of foster care. Sarah made a payment to her Discover card early on the morning of the crash, which suggests she didn't know what was going to happen later. The payment also could have been an automatic one. Some Facebook sleuths speculate that the Hearts decided to end it all because of their debt. But while $14,000 is no joke, the bank wasn't foreclosing on their home, and it doesn't seem so insurmountable that Chen would kill the whole family. Another persistent theory, that one of the Hart moms was terminally ill. In a Facebook status update, Jen vaguely blames health issues for a months-long hiatus, but nothing in our interviews and the Hart's emails and paperwork points to any kind of physical illness. It doesn't seem like such a big leap to say Jen suffered from depression. She was isolated. She had removed herself from real life. She didn't have a strong support network. No family nearby or in-the-flesh friends she saw regularly. Seven months after the Hearts died, Lauren Smiley made a trip to Mendocino County to talk with Sheriff Tom Allman, who has been leading the investigation since day one. He was at the scene of the crash hours after it happened and has returned countless times since. Here's Lauren. I stopped by the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office on my drive up from San Francisco to the cliff. The office is on the edge of the county seat town of Ukiah, right next to the jail. Mendocino County is known for redwoods, marijuana farms, and awe-inspiring coastline. Allman has been the sheriff coroner here for more than a decade. He looks like the sheriff from the movies. White fisherman mustache, really ruddy skin. A bust of George Washington sits behind his desk. His starred helmet from his time as a civilian peacekeeper in late 90s Kosovo sits on a shelf. My name is Tom Allman. I'm the sheriff of Mendocino County, and I've been sheriff three terms. I'm about to start my fourth term, and I've worked for the county since 85. Listen, I'm not going to downplay the super sleuths, because we've gotten good information from people who have found good information. And so law enforcement would be foolhardy to say, oh, no, this is our job. Go away. We're actually sleuths, too. You know, we can think of these things, and we we work with chemists and the forensic labs to, and good old-fashioned police work of saying, you know, who done it? How, how can we solve this crime? We are following up leads, and we're not putting out press releases of, of new shocking information that we find 
to satisfy some sleuth's curiosity. Sheriff Allman told us something we hadn't heard before, that there was a group of friends and acquaintances of the Hearts who came from as far away as Minnesota to help the search efforts. They used the bluff where the family died as their home base. There was a half dozen of them that were camped at that pullout for three months, four months. They would walk the beach. That's how the one gentleman from back east was walking the beach each morning. He found the one body, and and then the people who found the foot and pants leg turned it over to him, and he turned it over to the Ohio Patrol, and the Ohio Patrol gave it to us. The body Sheriff Allman is referring to is Sierra Hart, who was found two weeks after the accident. You remember she was the 12-year-old baby of the family. She was small and spunky and loved music and animals. The foot Sheriff Allman mentions was Hannah's. She was the one who jumped out of her bedroom window in the middle of the night. One of the friends who came out to help with the search was a man named AJ. He drove all the way from Minnesota shortly after the family died and stayed until the beginning of June. We weren't able to connect with AJ directly. He didn't respond to messages. But Lauren chatted with Val Hale, a local resident who got to know him pretty well. Here she is to set the scene. As you drive through the tiny town of Westport on Highway 1, you'll see an all-wood building with a Pepsi sign and one gas pump. That's Val's store. The highway sign announcing the town says there's 299 residents, but locals say only 50 actually live here full-time, and all seem to know Val. People kept telling me to go there. Inside, there's a small deli with the menu written on chalkboards and rows of groceries like wine, cooking oil, and toilet paper to spare residents the half-hour trip south to the bigger town of Fort Bragg. Locals pin notices on an announcement board outside. Handyman for Hire, a support group for people with depression. Val has lived in Westport since 1980. He took over the store from his mom last year. Everybody knows AJ. Very nice man. Was super dedicated. Even law enforcement was worried about how he was going above and beyond. And, uh, you know, he was just a real nice fellow. And uh, he gave you a different perspective to all the rumors and all the speculation and all the stuff, you know, because you, you basically have a tragic incident that looks almost like a crime scene. No one's guilty until you're proven guilty, but there's all these speculations. So it was really hard. And then you get a, a face to some, at least a friend of the family. And, and um, it, it helped put a normal, everyday thing for us especially in this real small town, and A.J. brought that to us. And he was also very polite, very honest, and just really wanted to get to the bottom of things. It wasn't really one way or the other. It was just wanting to find. And he did. He did make a difference. Val talked about how A.J. walked out on the cliffs. So far out, the fire chief was concerned he wouldn't make it back before dark. I can't even imagine how many miles he walked on those beaches and bluffs and drove around and uh, sat on the with his binoculars day after day after day after day after day. I mean, he was just a figure of our town for months. I mean, you know, once you become a part of a little community like this, it's not like Fox News where they come up and set up their stuff and then, you know, go home. This was a whole different thing, and um, it was interesting. It was definitely nice to have, like I said, a, a, a human connection to something that seemed hard to put words with. Would he come into your store about every day? Not every day. In the beginning, yes, every day, and look for, um, uh, you know, have questions on what might be the word out on the street, so to speak. And then it came down to where it would be a few times a week towards the end. Hey, Brucey. And what sort of tips did you share with him? Uh, just the tips of the weather, um, what to look for. The, the big tip for him was, was when one of my uh, guys that I grew up with who was on the fire department said, you know, there's a certain way that the water 
um, the currents work. And even though the wind's blowing south, um, where that particular incident happened, we need to look north in the bay north. And, it's, and he did, and he did, and he did, and that's when he found stuff. He learned the tricks of the trade very quickly. He adapted himself. He hadn't been to the ocean, you know, he didn't know about the Pacific. And, you know, he adapted and he stayed dedicated. And that was the key to everything. I mean, that was the key to making the difference. Maybe AJ had it right. The key to making a difference is about actually showing up. Lacing up a pair of boots and walking along the cliffs, rain or shine, alone or with other heart friends. AJ did that. He was at the place where his friends died and looked for them in real life. He didn't just click through pictures of them or sit in front of a computer a thousand miles away. He didn't try to piece together the clues from afar, then bounce ideas and hypotheses off strangers. Maybe the key to real friendship is being there, in the flesh, for better or worse, in sickness and in health. As Val said, some people look for crowds and some people look for lonely places. If we've learned one thing from the hearts, it's this. There are lots of lonely places in the world, too many. And once you've lost yourself in one of them, or several, as we believe Jen did, it's really hard to find your way back. Next time on Broken Hearts. We assume that people who are abusive are abusive both in their private lives, but also in their public lives. And we know this now not to be true. As I was coming up here, I felt like this sense of dread. The coroner's inquest is going to, in my opinion, give evidence that will shock the consciousness of people who are following this case. This will be a water cooler conversation throughout our nation. If you suspect a child is being abused, call 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800-4-A-C-H-I-L-D. Or visit childhelp.org to find out how to report your concerns. For access to exclusive photos and videos and documents about the case, visit glamour.com slash brokenhearts. Have questions for us about this podcast? Reach us on Twitter at GlamourMag or at Broken Hearts Pod. If you like what you heard, leave us a review. Broken Hearts is a joint production between Glamour and How Stuff Works, with new episodes dropping every Tuesday. Broken Hearts is co-hosted and co-written by Justine Harmon and Elizabeth Egan and edited by Wendy Noggle. Lauren Smiley is our field reporter. Samantha Barry is Glamour's editor-in-chief. Julie Shen and Deanna Buckman head up the business side of this partnership. Joyce Pendola, Pat Singer, and Luke Zaleski are our research team. Jason Hoke is executive producer on behalf of How Stuff Works, along with producers Julian Weller, Ben Kiebrick, and Josh Thane. Special thanks to Jen Lance. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish Sussman, every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.